Luke chapter 5, verse 1 says this, On one occasion while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. So we continue on through the book of Luke. One of the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're considered synoptic gospels, synoptic meaning to form a general summary or a synopsis of the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic gospels. The book of John is in quite contrast to the other three gospels, and it focuses mostly on his Judean ministry in the book of John rather than the synoptic gospels, which focus mostly on his Galilean ministry, his ministry around the Sea of Galilee. The book of Luke here that we're in right now is 35% unique. A third of the book of Luke is unique. The other two-thirds actually is shared with Matthew and Mark, or both. Um, So half the book, just about half the book, is shared with both Matthew and Mark. Almost half of the eyewitness accounts that we're going to go through here for the next little bit in the book of Luke is shared, just from a different perspective, of course. So here we are in Luke 5, Jesus standing by the, the lake of Gennesaret, which is another form for the Sea of Galilee, uh, depending on where you were from, what the dominant town was at that time, the, kinda, the name would change a little bit. The Old Testament referred to this sea as the Sea of Chinnereth. Nowadays, it's called the Sea of Galilee or uh, Lake Tiberias. And actually, I have a map uh, coming up that just kind of shows you where we're at. It's, it's, the Sea of Galilee is Israel's largest freshwater lake. It's 21 kilometers long. It's 13 kilometers wide. In the center of the lake, it's about uh, 141 feet deep. And so you can see there at the top uh, is the Sea of Galilee. At the bottom is the Dead Sea. And so right now, Jesus is in the northern part of Israel. That's kind of his Galilean ministry was in the northern part of Israel there. Kind of traveled around. There's some familiar towns there, Capernaum, uh, Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea isn't on there, but it's kind of down near the center on the coastline. Uh, You see Jerusalem down near the Dead Sea. And so that just gives you an idea of where Jesus is at right now. He's standing by the shore of the Sea of Galilee in the northern part of Israel. And the crowd is pressing in on him to hear the word of God. Just what an amazing picture, eh? People are just desperate to hear the word of God. As I was prepping for this morning, I saw a comment that said, have you guys heard of The Chosen, the web series, pretty popular web series, kind of follows the life of Jesus and stuff. It came out past a year, two or one or two years ago. There's a couple seasons now. I never watched it, but I saw a comment that said, hey, you got to go watch the part of The Chosen where they show this, where they kind of cover this part that we're going to look at here. And so I skimmed through a few episodes and I found where it was and, and I found the part as Jesus is standing beside the Sea of Galilee and he's teaching and the camera's kind of looking at a profile shot and it kind of pans around as if it's going into the water and so you're looking behind Jesus out to the crowd and you're like, oh, this is going to be awesome. And there's like 10 people sitting there. <laughs> it's actually quite underwhelming. It was like eight or nine people just quietly listening. It's all nice and calm and peaceful. This is not what was going on right now, you guys. The, the people were pressing in on Jesus to hear him speak the word of God. This wasn't like a nice old lady's Bible study with, oh, Pastor T, the fig, Pastor Fig Newton's over. 
Gertrude? Like, that's not what's going on. This was like, this was like pandemonium. People were pressing the appetite and hunger to hear the word of God was like insane. They were pushing in on Jesus, trying to get closer. And Jesus, I imagine, is backing up and up and, and, and he's trying to like keep the crowd back a bit. I don't, he didn't have any bouncers at this point. And so in an attempt to talk to all these people, he's yelling, his voice is probably getting a little hoarse maybe. You know, there's people in the back, that, I can't, I can't, they're whispering, I can't hear what he's saying, down. Get, sit down up there, I can't hear, you know, they're trying to worm their way through to hear what Jesus is saying. And look at verse two, what Jesus decides to do. He saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So Jesus gets in one of the boats who we find out is Simon's, who we later know will become Peter. Uh, and Jesus sits down in the boat and, and he begins teaching people from the boat. And so what, we, what, do we, what he's teaching about, we don't really know, but I mean, we kind of know this living on the water here, right? That the, the water kind of has a bit of a natural projection of your voice. It's easy to listen to people you got to whisper when you're out on the boat if you're talking gossip about someone because people like a kilometer away can hear you. But the way he was on the sea, you know, he was out a little bit, so it gave him a little bit of distance from the people, and there's kind of a natural amphitheater, so he was able to project his voice, and everyone could kind of see him. And we didn't know what he was teaching about, but we know he had a captive audience eager to hear the word of God. And so verse 4 goes on, it says, When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep, and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Now, friends, if you'd like to underline your Bible, now's the time to underline. Get ready. Underline this if you don't have it underlined. But at your word, I will let down the nets. So Jesus finishes up speaking. Um, he looks to Simon. He says, hey, Simon, take us out into the deep and put down your nets. And Peter goes, now listen here, Jesus. I know, I know, Jesus, you're an amazing teacher of the word of God. I know you healed my mother-in-law. We just read last week in Luke 4 that Jesus healed his mother-in-law earlier, Simon's mother-in-law earlier. You know, Jesus, you're in touch with spiritual things. But Jesus, I'm the fisherman here. Now is not the time to be fishing. I like to think he maybe went into mansplaining mode. And he said, Jesus, let me tell you, Jesus, the time to fish is at night. When it's cooler, the fish come to the shore. Do you understand, Jesus? Fish come to the shore when it's cooler to feed. Because you see, Jesus, it's hot out right now. Do you understand? It's the middle of the day. The fish go to the center of the lake where it's cooler and our nets aren't even made to go to the deep parts of the water where the fish are. They're like shallow water nets. They're, there's nothing, there's no fish where you're taking us. You don't understand, Jesus. You have no idea what you're talking about. But nevertheless, at your word. Verse six, when they done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. So the nets get tossed over, and boom, fish on. If any of you guys are, I mean, they use nets, but that feeling of when you fish grabs on and you set the hook, 
man, as these guys pull up, these nets are just full. They begin ripping and tearing. There's probably hundreds, thousands of fish maybe in their net as they begin to try and pull them up and they call their partners over for, for help. Probably the partners were James and John, uh, two brothers. They were in the other boat, while Andrew, who's Simon's brother, was probably in the boat with Jesus and Simon throwing the nets over. And there, Simon and, and Andrew are struggling to pull the nets in, and James and John come out and, and try and help. And in a, just something never seen before in the middle of the day, on a hot day in the Sea of Galilee, a load of fish get caught in the deepest part of the lake. What an amazing thing. The first key to ministry at your word. Simon says, Jesus, you preacher boy, you don't know what you're talking about. This doesn't make any sense. I've been trying all night without success. This isn't how it's done. I don't know if you understand how this works, Jesus. I'm tired. There's no fish here. I think I'm good. I'd rather be watching Netflix. I'm hungry. But nevertheless, Simon says, at your word, at the word of Jesus, your ministry will not be productive without the direction of Jesus. You can work and labor and toil all you want, but without the words of Jesus, there will be no fruit. You feel like the wheels are just spinning, but you're not going anywhere. Maybe you've been trying all night and nothing seems to be working. Let me ask you this, and this is just a question. Are you listening to the word of God? In the book of John, Jesus says this. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. That's just a fact. And we're not just talking about bearing fruit in evangelism. We're talking about bearing fruit in your marriage, bearing fruit in, in raising your kids, bearing fruit in your job, in your relationships. Apart from the word of Jesus, you can do nothing. The first key to ministry that we see here in this first bit of text is at your word. And the second key to ministry actually comes right away. Look at that. You don't have to think too much. It comes right away from Simon. He says, at your word, master, I will do it. And what does he do? He do it. <laughs> he do it. He does it. He doesn't just simply go, yeah, yeah, Jesus, I hear you, I hear you, and then not do anything. He throws the nets over. Simon hears and Simon does. James chapter one says this, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Friends, the second key to ministry, you need to be a doer of the word. The act of blessing comes in the doing, not just the hearing. You think Simon would have gotten all those fish if he didn't actually do what Jesus said and throw the nets over? You know, there was a, a period of time, actually, about a couple years ago, actually, and it was a period of time, about six months, where um, I would come to Sunday night prayer every Sunday night, um, and I would leave exhausted, actually. I would come to prayer, and I would leave 
uh, a little, you know that feeling when you're like hangry and just everything annoys you? <laughs> I'd just be irritated after leaving Sunday night prayer for about six months straight. And yeah, and it was tough to come to prayer, but, but I, I knew the importance of corporate prayer with fellow believers. I knew the value of praying with others. I know the word says, let us not giving up meeting together. So I just kept going week after week. And man, it was a battle. Like it wasn't easy. It was like, I really did not look forward to going to Sunday night prayer. But as I shared that with people and, and stuff, and, and, and they reminded me that a huge part of the battle is just simply showing up. Just simply doing what the Lord wants you to do. Just put the excuses aside and simply do it. It's easy to make any excuse, isn't it? Yeah, I'll go next week. I'll just miss this one. It's big. It's the Battle of Alberta tonight. I can't go tonight. But you got to show up, friends. You got to do what Jesus calls you to do. It's not simply enough to hear and not do. And that's where the battle is, isn't it? It's in the doing. Jesus didn't promise us that following him would be easy. In fact, he told us that in this world, we're going to have trouble. The act of doing is a lot harder than the act of listening. The battle doesn't come from hearing God's word and then doing nothing. That's when the devil's already won. He's like, great, no problem. The battle comes from the doing, but like we saw from Peter, I'm going to, I'm going to get so, I'm going to call Simon and Peter back and forth. So understand, I mean, Simon and Peter, the same. The battle comes from the doing, but like we saw from Simon Peter, the blessing also comes from the doing. Look at verse 7 again. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So the fish get hauled in. The boats begin to sink. They're so full. Simon looks over to Jesus falls to his knees and repents and says, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And that's your third key to ministry this morning. Repent. Repent and know your position. Is there sin in your life? Well, then deal with it. Repent and know that Jesus heals. Is there relationships in your life you need to mend? Is someone mad at you for something you did? Go repair the relationship. Are you mad at someone else? You have anger. Are you harboring anger towards someone? Man, forgive them and realize the position that you are in, that Jesus forgave you of all your sin as he hung on that cross, as he bore the weight of your sin. Simon says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Simon knew in that moment as the fish were hauled in and he looked at Jesus that there was something different about this Jesus guy. This isn't just simple, some, some, old, some old carpenter who's a good guy. See, the first time Simon addressed Jesus earlier, when Jesus told him to throw the nets over, Simon says, master, which in the original Hebrews, just kind of a more general term for leader, governor, one in authority, 
Whereas now he says, depart from me, O Lord. Simon looked at Jesus and saw that there is something more than just having an authority given to him by men. There's a special authority that is through Jesus, far more than just a man-given title. And also in turn, Simon says, I realize that I am but a sinful man in the presence of the Lord. The key difference for you and me, though, is, is I don't want to say better, but this is what we can say now. And Peter could have said then. Peter said, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. We can say this, come near to me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Peter's confession here wasn't really one of awe. It wasn't like, oh. It was like, Peter, Peter was afraid. He was like scared, like many in the past, like we've read, who've experienced the presence of the Lord or, or thought that they've experienced the presence of the Lord. They thought they were going to die because of their sinfulness. They understood in that moment, oh my goodness, I am a sinful man. I am not worthy to be in the presence of the Lord. And Simon says, I'm not worthy to be near you, Jesus, for I am a sinner. Which is why Jesus responds saying, do not be afraid. Literally, stop being afraid. Simon, from now on, you'll be catching men. And they brought, they brought their boats to the land. They left everything and they followed Jesus. They didn't just hear Jesus. They heard him. Jesus said, come follow me. And what did they do? They do it. They did it. They acted at the direction and word of Jesus. And so for about the next 19 chapters through the book of Luke, as we go through, uh, we're going to see this group. We're going to see eight more. Join them. And they're going to follow closely and intimately with Jesus as he travels around Israel. He, he teaches these young men. He disciples them. He shares life with them. He has meals with them. He shows these young, uneducated, dirty men what it means to be a Christ follower. And once these men have been alongside Jesus for about three years, gleaning and witnessing Christ, there's going to be a day to come when Simon, this Simon here, hauls in another net full. This time it'll be at Pentecost. And like Jesus said, it ain't going to be fish. It's going to be about 3,000 men as, as Simon Peter stands up and preaches a message that brings 3,000 to Christ at one message. See, Jesus has an authority that is far more than just able to speak some nice words. And we're going to see that here in the next couple of accounts by Luke. He keeps with the idea of this authority that Jesus has. Let's keep going. Uh, Luke 5, verse 12. Jesus cleanses a leper. says this, While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest, and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. So leprosy in that day, and still is, it is a debilitating disease. It doesn't, like you don't get healed from leprosy. Now, nowadays, we have medication that can help, help slow it, but there's no cure. Uh, it's, it's an infection that causes disfiguration of the skin, uh, 
causes sores, causes nerve damage. It can cause digits and extremities to basically rot away. It's, it's a pretty nasty, nasty disease. Um, and so as a person with leprosy during this time, you are supposed to wear torn clothes. It outlines all this in uh, Leviticus 13. You're supposed to wear torn clothes. You let your hair grow out. You live by yourself or in a kind of separate leper colony outside the city. And anytime someone would come near you, you were to cry out, unclean, unclean. Because if anyone touches a leper, if your clothes touch a leper, uh, if anything touches or comes in any contact with a leper, you then also become unclean and you have to go through proper cleaning rituals before you're ritually clean again. So Jesus is in the city. A man comes to him, a leper comes to Jesus, falls on his face and says, if you will, you can make me clean. What an amazing profession of faith this is, isn't it? If you will, Jesus, I know you can make me clean. If you are willing, you can do it. Not only healed, but made clean. Made spiritually clean again. And what does Jesus do? He stretches out his hand and he touches the leper. And he says, I will be clean. And the leprosy leaves the man. Now, if anyone is around him, which they likely were a lot around him, they would probably be freaking out in slow, no, Jesus, don't touch, because they know what's going to happen if Jesus touches this man. This is not good. And, and probably for the first time in many, many, many years, this man feels the loving touch of another person upon him, the loving touch of Jesus Christ as he reaches out and touches this leper, as the leper becomes clean. And in a, in a supernatural show of authority, Jesus touches this leper, and rather than Jesus being made unclean, this man is made clean. And that isn't how this works, if I didn't make that clear. <laughs> this isn't how this works. When you have something dirty and something clean, and they touch, the clean thing always becomes dirty. We just know that. That's just basic, right? Muddy paws and white sheets. What happens? Yeah, my white sheets get dirty. My dog's paws don't magically get clean. I don't harbor any ill will, but just so you know, don't let your dog's muddy paws on your white sheets because it doesn't clean your dog's muddy paws. When someone touches a leper, they become unclean, not the other way around. But Jesus, with a supernatural authority over sickness, touches this man and makes him whole again. And then what happens? Look at verse 14. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priests and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. I've heard it said like this, Pastor Skip Heitzig, an awesome Calvary Chapel pastor down in the States. He said it like this, and I couldn't say it much better. This is Jesus giving his business card to the priests and the people of high authority of organized religion. As Jesus sends the leper to the priests, this is like Jesus saying, hey, listen, you guys, there's someone new in town and you better figure yourself out because I don't like what's going on here. And the priests and Pharisees would have taken notice. Because in the book of Leviticus chapter 14, it outlines what to do if someone has a skin disease and is healed of it. 
the steps to take, and we won't dive into that because I could, that would definitely put me over, that we'd be an hour 15 if I went into Leviticus. We could be here for a long time. But basically it involved this, two birds, you kill one, one gets set free, and then you sprinkle the blood and mixture of water and other stuff over the person seven times. They're clean, they need to wash themselves, shave themselves, and they're clean. That's basically what you had to do if you had leprosy and were healed of it, or a skin disease and were healed of it. Well, in the Old Testament, there's six different people named who had leprosy. There's six people named in the Old Testament who had leprosy, and only three of them were healed. The first is Moses, when he was at the burning bush. You guys remember, he stuck his hand in the cloak, pulled it out, leprosy, stuck it back in the cloak, pulled it out, he's healed. Now, probably didn't undergo any cleaning ritual because this was before all the book of Leviticus and the how to do it. Uh, you got Miriam, Moses' sister. She grumbles against Moses. She gets leprosy, but Moses intercedes. God heals her. Now, she probably did undergo the cleansing process, but that was a long time before the New Testament here. And then the third one who got healed from leprosy in the Old Testament we know is Naaman. He's an army commander. He's told by Elisha to wash himself seven times in the Jordan River to be healed. And he was. They said his, said his skin was like that of a baby. Now, he probably didn't undergo the cleansing, clean, cleansing process because he was a Gentile and he didn't follow the Jewish law. So there's really one, one out of six that has gone through this leper cleansing process. And, and so who knows? This leper comes to the temple to be cleansed and the priests are like, huh? Hey, go in. That's my Israeli accent. Get the Leviticus scroll, would you? Is this going on the internet? What are we supposed to do again? Who healed you? Someone, you're healed? You're healed of leprosy? Are you sure? You're sure you had leprosy? I, I, we got to bring out the Levitical scroll because I kind of forget about what we're supposed to do here. This is like a human business card delivered right to the men in charge themselves. I got scared. That's why I backed out of that. <laughs> he was charged to tell no one the leper. He was said, Jesus said, don't tell anyone. But I mean, come on. We know in other accounts that uh, he just blabbers in his mouth. Because I mean, wouldn't you? He just goes to everyone. He tells everybody about what's happened to him, about how Jesus healed him. And, and, and so the reports about Jesus, they continue to go abroad and, 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 come, and people come from all over the place. They continue hearing reports about Jesus. They come to Jesus to be healed. Look at verse 16. It says this, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And so as the ministry of Jesus got bigger and bigger and more and more people were coming to him, so did his need to pray. Let me ask you this question. Do you have time to pray? Are you too busy to pray? The greater the stress for Jesus, the greater the need for him to pray. If Jesus could take time to get away and pray, how much more do we need to? If you're around CTK enough, you know, you'll, you'll hear the wheel illustration, a common Navigators 2-7 series illustration we use about, about power being directed out from Christ at the center of your life. And power goes out as you're an obedient Christian. And so to be an obedient Christian you got Christ at the center of your life and one of the spokes that directs power out from Christ for you to be an obedient Christian is the spoke of prayer. 
Very important to be in prayer. A crucial part of your ministry. Are you too busy to pray? Because Jesus sure wasn't. Look at another account of the special authority that Jesus has. Verse 17. 17 to 21 says, On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who'd come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So Jesus is teaching and all the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they got that business card of a leper being healed and they wanted to see what this Jesus guy is all about. So they come from all over, way down Jerusalem. Remember Jerusalem was on that map. It was way down by the Dead Sea and and Jesus is way up at the Sea of Galilee. Like they're coming from all around to hear what Jesus has to say. And they're sitting there listening and all of a sudden, like they look up and there's like, Stuff falling down from the roof, which actually happens on our roof once in a while. Not because there's people coming down, but there's this weird stuff on the roof. But dirt and stuff and, and just starts coming down. All of a sudden, like, sunshine starts shining through. And, and, and maybe the best friends ever recorded in the history of the universe, they begin lowering down their paralyzed friend in front of Jesus. You guys all know this story. And, and Jesus takes one look at the man and he looks at the friends and he says, hey, because of your faith, your sins are forgiven. And, and I think we get two different reactions here. The first reaction is you got the friends. I like to imagine a few friends. All you can see is their face peering in. Well, would have be big enough to just let a guy in? But they're just peering in. They're maybe a little scared of heights. I think a couple of them probably were a little scared of heights, but they're really good friends. So they wanted to do this for their friend. And they're peering in and they're patting themselves on the back like, wow, we did it. We got our buddy down in front of Jesus here. And Jesus looks to the friend and he says, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, ah, uh, yeah, that's all right, Jesus. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I mean, we saw Timmy walking down the street there, so we were kind of hoping you'd do the same for our buddy here. But ah, uh, that's, that's okay. That's cool. Yeah, your sins are forgiven. Awesome. Sweet. We'll take it. We'll take what we can get here. Whereas the scribes and the Pharisees go, whoa, 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 whoa. Stop. No. Hold on a second. Who is this man speaking blasphemies? God alone can forgive sins. Who does this guy think he is? This is, this is not okay. This guy is in deep trouble. And they're right. They are right. It is an absolute blasphemy to think that you can forgive sins unless you are God. No man or woman other than God can forgive sins. And Jesus perceives the thoughts of those around him, and he says this in verse 22. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he'd been lying on and went home, glorifying God. 
and amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and they were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things to say. What's easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Well, of course, I could walk around and say, hey, your sins are forgiven. Uh, yeah, yeah, your sins are forgiven. And, and who can know whether I'm right or wrong? You, you can't know. You can't fact check that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, fourth row in, your sins are forgiven. But if I walk up to a paralyzed person, I say, hey, you get up and walk, and they don't, then you know right away I'm a fraud. And so Jesus demonstrates his power to do the invisible by showing them that he also has the power to do the visible so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. You there, get up and walk. An amazing show of authority and power. Don't let anyone tell you that Jesus didn't claim to be God. For only God can forgive sins, and through the power that was seen by the man getting up and walking, the power that was unseen through Jesus is so much more important. Amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. You're darn right, you've seen extraordinary things today. Like, look at verse 27 as we go on. Jesus calls another disciple. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Levi, also known as Matthew, who we know as Matthew the tax collector, uh, Matthew who wrote the book of Matthew. Why do they call him Levi? I actually looked it up and it actually said this. I, uh, here's a shameless plug. Go listen to our Proto-Evangelum podcast. And on there we asked Pastor Jazz what his Christian name was. And I thought that was funny. But that's an actual, they say Levi is Matthew's Christian name. That's the official Levi's this Hebrew Christian name. So Matthew, Levi, he's a Jewish tax collector. He'd be known as a traitor amongst the Jewish people. Uh, he's not a well-liked guy in the community for sure. What they would do in that day, the Romans, they would say, okay, uh, this area here, you need to collect this amount of money from this area uh, and then whatever else above and beyond that amount of money, you can just keep. It's yours. That's your, that's your payment for doing this job. So tax collectors could do an awesome thing where they could just make up whatever they wanted as taxes. They could say, oh, actually, no, your tax is now five shekels instead of three. And that's the way it is. And you peasant can't do anything about it. So pay up and I'll put the two in my pocket. So tax collectors were hated just in general, let alone a Jewish one who's working for the main governing body that it's oppressing the Jewish people. But Jesus is kind of drawn to the messy people, isn't he? Look at who we have so far with him. We have Simon Peter, who we know, as good Bible readers, we know from above, he can't keep his mouth shut. Simon Peter, he, he speaks before thinking, He's got his brother Andrew with him, who's probably the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? You got James and John, uh, who Jesus refers to as the sons of thunder. Later on in Luke chapter 9, we're going to, um, they go to a town and they leave and they go, hey Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy this town? And Jesus is like, whoa, chill out, <laughs> like relax boys, 
Like, chill. And now you have Levi the tax collector who's lining his pockets, stealing from people and considered a traitor amongst his people. And so Jesus loves the mess. He loves it. He loves a project. You know, you don't have to come to Jesus with your life all together. You come to Jesus as you are and he'll work with you to transform you. It won't be instant. It won't be right away. It might not be quick. It won't always be easy, but I'm telling you, it'll be worth it. Levi leaves everything and he follows Jesus. Look at verse 29. Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Levi throws a big feast. He invites his friends. The only friends he has are tax collectors and other sinners. So these Pharisees say, First thing he wants to do is he wants to make sure his friends know about Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they grumble. You shouldn't be eating with tax collectors and dirty sinners. See, the act of eating together was of great significance for these guys at this time. Um, Having a meal together is a very personal thing. You're sharing food. You know, they're not sitting at nice five-star tables with their napkins on their legs. And, you know, they don't have Hobart turbo dishwashers that are washing dishes 24-7 as their cutlery. You know, I'm not saying they're savages, but they're passing bowls around, dipping their bread and stuff. They're sharing. It's a very intimate time as they enjoy a meal together, which actually still holds true to this day, right? Like, there's a, don't think there's like a random by chance that we try and have soup and salads here and sandwich and salads here regularly because there's something special about having a meal together, isn't there? There's something intimate about a family, the family of God coming together and sharing a meal. And so I imagine here the, the Pharisees and their scribes are outside. They're maybe angry, walk, they're stomping their feet as they walk up to Matthew's house. And maybe they're lingering around outside. The bouncer doesn't let them in or something. And they're kind of loud talk. Can you believe what Jesus is doing in there? That's disgusting. Maybe the disciples are outside. They're getting some fresh air. And Jesus responds, like he says, first of all, I mean, who invited you guys? You're just standing around the house awkwardly, you weirdos. Get out of here when you just mind your own business for once. And then second of all, actually, yes, these are exactly the people that I should be eating with. The healthy people have no need for a physician. Jesus, the great physician. It isn't the healthy that have the need for a doctor. It isn't the righteous that Jesus are calling. Rather, he's calling the sinners to repentance. Do you know anybody, this might be a little personal for some of you, do you know anybody that refuses to admit they're sick? That might be some of you in here. Usually it's men. They go, no, I'm not sick. I'm just a little sniffly. No, uh, it's just allergies. I'm fine. Uh, But hey, man, you can't get out of bed. No, no, I'm fine. I feel okay. Trust me. It's you that's sick, actually. I'm not sick. I don't get sick. Last time I was sick was when I stubbed my toe in 62. That was, I haven't been sick in years. I'm not sick. See, those aren't the kind of people that Jesus came for, the kind that can't admit that they're sick. You need to recognize your sickness. You are sick, friends. 
And that sickness is growing if you don't take care of it. It's called sin. For Jesus to work through you, you need to repent and realize that you are a sinner. You sin and that sin will ultimately grow and grow until it leads to death spiritually. And then physically you will die and that's it. You want to stay sick and in your sin? Fine. That's fine. Have it your way. But if you just admit your sin and repent, Jesus, the great physician, can heal you. He can look at you and say, your sins are forgiven. And it's important to actually do it. Again, our second key to ministry, do it. It's very easy to say, oh, I repent. It's easy to hear. But there's an act of repenting, right? There's an act of turning 180 degrees and truly repenting and saying, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I've done things. I, I admit I sinned. Jesus, I did this. Jesus, I watched that. Jesus, I looked at this. But Lord, I need your help to not do that again. You can't just keep falling in the same cycle over and over. Oh, Jesus, I repent. Okay, now let's go over and let's get wasted. Like that's, there's an act of doing it, an act of, of truly intent of saying it. Lord, I'm a sinner and I repent. And there's, then there's an act of doing it. And it's not easy. It's not easy. It isn't. Like, I don't stand here and think, oh, yeah, just do it. Like, it's a struggle. But with the help of Jesus, the Lord, the help of of fellowship, friends around you, man, keeping you accountable, you can do it. And to be honest, it's kind of sad that these Pharisees, they don't get it. They just don't get it. You kind of, it's easy for us to badmouth the scribes and Pharisees and, and stuff, but they just don't understand. They don't get it. They diagnose others as sinners and nobodies because they don't follow their strict laws and guidelines. On the surface, these Pharisees appear righteous, but in reality, they're sinners just like everyone else. And so look at the end here as Jesus hammers this idea home to them. We're going to wrap up here pretty quick. Have you heard that once or twice? That's CTK. Verse 33 says this, They said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins and no one after drinking old wine desires new for he says the old is good. So Jesus uses a couple parables here. He presents the idea of a wedding feast. In that day, a man and a woman, they get married and they'd have like a week-long party. There'd be feasts and great times. And Jesus says here, are you going to make the guests fast while they're having their party? Certainly not. There should be joy and fellowship and eating. The bridegroom, being Jesus, is with them. Now, there'll come a time in the future when fasting is done. But now, this moment while Jesus is among the people, now is not the time to be fasting. And then Jesus gives them two parables. The first one goes like this. When you get a hole in your pants, you don't put a new piece 
patched onto the old piece because when you go to wash it and it dries, it, it stretches differently and the new patch will shrink and pull away and actually end up making it worse than it was before. And then the second parable Jesus uses is about uh, wine and, and wineskins. And so in that day, they'd put the grape juice in wineskins and it would ferment. And, and as things ferment, it creates gases and it makes the wineskin expand and, and it contracts and it, it moves and goes up and down. And eventually it would get old and you can only stretch something so much. And so if you put new wine in old wineskins, there's not going to be any more to stretch and it's going to burst. You don't put the old with the new. You don't put the new with the old. Other way around. And that's what these Pharisees, they just didn't understand. They didn't, they didn't get it. Jesus didn't come to reform the old method. Jesus didn't come to take the Pharisees' method and set up a 10-step system to success for the Jewish religion. He came to make everything new. He didn't come just to put a patch over the old. He came to start new. He came to start better. He came to start a new dispensation, if you will, big word for Bible students. He came to bring in a new dispensation of grace. Jesus came to introduce a new system that didn't involve counting the number of steps you're allowed to take on the Sabbath day. You didn't have to wonder if you were clean or unclean. You didn't have to worry about the Pharisees calling you a sinner and unclean and you weren't allowed to do anything because Jesus came for you. Friends, the messy, the sinner, Jesus came for the sinner and the lost. The old system can't be patched up. It just can't be patched up the way it is now. Jesus came that you may have life and that you may have it abundantly. So to wrap it up, I just want to remind you of these two things as the worship team comes up and leads us in one more song to wrap it up. I just want to remind you of these two things. Simple, hopefully clear to understand, and it's kind of the two big ideas that we talked about uh, today. It's the three keys to ministry. These are your three keys to ministry. At your word, then you have to do it and also make sure you repent. Don't come to Jesus thinking you're in charge and you're going to do anything you want. You need to understand that Jesus is Lord. You need to understand that Jesus died on the cross for you. And then this is the second thing for you to remember as you leave here. First thing, three keys to ministry. At your word, do it, repent. The second thing is, hey, Jesus loves the mess. Jesus loves a project. He didn't come to try and reform the old Pharisee system and the scribe system, the mess that they just turned it into. Jesus came to bring something new and, to, and something new he brought, didn't he? You don't have to come to Jesus worried that you aren't going to be accepted. You don't have to come to Jesus worried that you aren't going to be good enough, that you're going to measure up like the Pharisees had. Oh, you can't be eating with sinners, you sicko. Jesus has a supernatural authority whereby you come to him dirty and unclean and you say, Jesus, make me clean. And friends, he will touch you. And in a bizarre twist of circumstances, rather than you making Jesus unclean, he will make you clean. And you'll have access to a life of abundance. And he doesn't say it's going to be easy, but I promise you it will be worth it.